We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Pro teams have millions to spend, and they don't always spend them wisely. But when it comes to a great shave, you don't have to shell out tons of cash. Harry's saw customers getting ripped off by the shaving industry with overpriced, underperforming products and decided to do something better. They found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of the other big brands, so you never wonder if you overpaid. Harry's shaving products look great, and the weighted handle makes shaving feel great too. I like to keep my beard neat, and Harry's always leaves me with a smooth yet crisp shave. Harry's quality is top-notch, thanks to German-engineered blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. You can get a five-blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and a travel cover for just three bucks at harrys.com slash bluewire. And Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, plus a convenient subscription option that you can cancel at any time. Getting the best doesn't mean spending the most when you shave with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire for a $3 trial set. Welcome to the Pat Mayo Experience, presented by DraftKings, talking best ball, NFL, digging back in. We did the show with Sealy last week about quarterbacks and running backs from the rookie perspective. We'll have more about wide receivers and tight ends in the following weeks, but I want to talk some best ball today, amongst other things, with Peter Overzet. Pete, you've been drafting best ball teams for ages now. Uh, I can't, I mean, it's great content, and I know that you're in the content business, but it must be, I don't want to say depressing, but... <laughs> uh, to, to be doing best ball drafts at like the end of March, like, and knowing you're going to be doing this for four straight months. <laughs> uh, I don't know if depressing would be the word, you know, I'm not depressed doing them. I, I have fun drafting. I have fun streaming, so it does work out, but I, I fully realize it is insane. Like that. I I've done over probably 250, 300 drafts already. And it just turned June 1st. So it's more a reflection of just how big the best ball space is now, how fast it's growing and just kind of the interest, you know, if no one was tuning into my streams, I would be like, forget this. I'll go do something else. But people want to watch this stuff right now. So I'm like, all right, I'll give you what you want. Let's fire up another best ball stream. I feel like I really missed the boat on best ball and not being sort of an early adopter, but like both you and Davis were in on it kind of from the ground floor. Like, Hey, this is going to be a really big thing. 
and I'm not anti best ball by any means. It's just, I have other stuff going on at that time of year with all the golf stuff that I do that I just never really, I, I just get so fucking burnt out from six straight months of NFL every single day that I've always had that like little period of a time off, but there's no time off. No one wants time off anymore in terms of content. No, they don't. And it, it does fit together nicely. You know, I mainly just do NFL stuff. And so spending in season doing DFS, you know, high stakes season long stuff, and then out of season best ball drafting. And then you obviously everyone knows best ball, you don't have to set your lineup, no transactions, no trades. And so you don't ever have to pay the piper for all of your drafts. You know, I can do 500 drafts and my work is completely done. And so that just takes you right into the DFS and then you can throw yourself into that. So it does at least fit together. But yeah, I used to have what in a two, three month lull, you know, after the Super Bowl, you know, decompress, get my mind right. And now it's just like, nope, a week after the Super Bowl, I'm already drafting teams. So uh, that is a downside, but uh, I don't know. I enjoy it and I'm not burnt out on it yet. That's good. I mean, well, let's talk in five years' time if best ball and like daily <laughs> yeah. fantasy is still a thing, and we'll see what's up. So, first picks—is it just like consensus? Justin Jefferson is the first overall pick in like all fantasy drafts now. It seems like that. Yeah, I've started to see some people will take uh, Jamar Chase there at one two. You know, the one running back who would typically challenge to be the one hundred one is Christian McCaffrey, but I think everyone's a little spooked on kind of how the second half of his season went, where they're like, "Hey, I'm paying you know nine k for Christian McCaffrey on DraftKings, and now Eli Mitchell's getting 12, 13, 15 touches a game," and I think that kind of thought has now trickled over to fantasy drafters. And they're like, yeah, we like CMC, but I'm worried that Kyle Shanahan is going to basically have a committee here. So let me just take one of the high upside wide receivers instead. Yeah, so Jefferson Chase won too. I mean, I would prefer Jefferson over Chase. I'm kind of surprised. And I guess it's a situation type thing. Like Cup is going towards the middle to the back end of the first round. Why is it just, we don't know about Matt Stafford. We don't know about his injury. There's too much risk in our minds associated with cup that he's not on their level because if it's full point PPR, then why wouldn't he be there? Yeah, I, I've actually been surprised with that too. I've noticed in ADP that uh, Tyreek Hill flipped uh, Cooper cup. And I think it is just that, Hey, you know, Cooper cup, uh, got injured at the end of last year. You know, Matthew Stafford was threatening to retire. That offense isn't very fun to bet on. And, you know, guys like Tyreek Hill or even Stefan Diggs, people get way more excited about those offenses. But I kind of think people are discounting Cooper Cup a little too much. I think, you know, if you are going to get someone to rival Justin Jefferson's consistency, which is just like you're getting 10 targets a game, you're basically getting a touchdown every game, that's going to be Cooper Cup. I mean, guys like Tyreek Hill and Jamar Chase, they're going to have the monster explosion weeks, no doubt, but they're going to have a little bit more volatility with their target share. Whereas with Jefferson and Cooper Cup, I just have no concerns about their ability to earn targets. Yeah, it seems like Cup is sort of like the discount Jefferson at this point. I'd probably Jefferson's upside is higher because he's a more dynamic downfield player but you said the consistency week to week it'd be the one thing about chase like because eventually you're gonna have to start making cons about all these guys even if you say that jamar chase is number two overall because justin jefferson is number one well now you need to come up with some sort of case for not having jamar chase at number one instead of just saying hey they're both great players they're both going to score a ton of fantasy points but i think that would be the differentiator is that well 15 of the 17 weeks, Jefferson is going to be awesome, where Chase might be the best player in fantasy four of those weeks, but he might have like four average games, which is not what you want from your first overall pick. 
Yeah. And that is kind of a constant push pull. And I actually noticed this a ton in like best ball debates and stuff going on, uh, on Twitter, on shows, whatever. Sometimes people are having two different debates where some people are just thinking about the way these tournaments are structured, where all the money's in the final weeks, you're trying to get that big spike week in weeks 15, 16, or 17 to propel you to the top of your pod or the top of the finals group. And then other people are having an argument about who projects best over the course of the season. And a guy like, you know, Jefferson versus Chase, Jefferson's going to have more smoothed out, you know, production, but someone like Chase can go for like 45 points in one game. And maybe it's not perfect to frame that next to Jefferson because he can do that too. But just that dynamic of most projections are for weeks one through 17, the entire season. But we know some players are more capable of spike weeks and guys like Tyreek Hill, legit, if Tyreek Hill goes for 40 in one of the playoff weeks, you're going to have to have him to be able to advance because the Tyree kill teams are all going to advance. And so it's an interesting dynamic to best ball where you have to think through both full season projection and single week spike week upside. It does seem like there's more thought putting into just winning the very top prize once you get to the end. I mean, that's how I would be playing it too, because I wouldn't really be concerned about seventh place. I'm only really concerned about first place, but there has to be some sort of pushback from people out there being like, well, you got to get there first. So maybe the consistency is the way that you want to go. And then, like you said, with Jefferson, like he could score 40 points too. So it's, you know, it's a weird push and pull when it comes between those two, like the overall weekly upside for chase. I think everyone kind of agrees is a little bit higher, but it's not substantially higher by any means. No. And I mean, the way Jefferson's actually a good example, like last year, he dominated, right? Absolutely crushed. If you looked at, you know, the ownership numbers on all of the teams who advanced to the finals in these playoff contests, he was on like 30, 40% of rosters. And then he got shut down against, I believe it was Jair Alexander on the Packers who just blanketed him in week 17. And all of those teams who had Justin Jefferson, they didn't win anything because when your first round pick doesn't show up, in the fantasy playoffs in week 17, like you're done. And so it doesn't matter if he crushed for 16 weeks, the way these tournaments are structured, you need that production in week 17. And so it ended up being the people who had Austin Eckler as their first round pick that won tournaments because he went off for 30 plus points that week. So it's really counterintuitive in that sometimes the best plays aren't actually the best plays the way the uncorrelated tournaments work. Well, when Pat ended up winning all the money at the end of last year, what did his final team look like? Like, was it a week 17 double or week? Yeah, week 17 double stack that ended up winning him all the money. Or was it like he had two or three guys at the end of drafts, like a Tyler Algier or something like that, that just produced a bunch of points and no one else had them? It was a little bit of all of that. Uh, like I said, him having Eckler, that exact example I used, he had Eckler and a lot of the field had Justin Jefferson. So that was huge. But he had seven players from the Dolphins Patriots game. <laughs> and it is a really interesting thing. And that was part of his strategy stacking up week 17. That game didn't go nuts per se, but he used scores from multiple players in that game. Raheem Mostert was a super late round, you know, running back pick who had 20 points in that game. And then both of his Patriots wide receivers, Jacoby Myers and Tyquan Thornton ended up in his final lineup. So it was interesting in that even those guys, he didn't have a single, you know, quote unquote league winner on his team, but they all went off when it mattered the most in tandem together. And I think that kind of speaks to the power of correlation and trying to hit on that one game where your low owned pieces all have a chance to kind of perform together. Are, are there any one or two consensus games that everyone is really trying to target so far this year? I remember last year there was, 
I think it was Bucks Panthers was a big one that everyone was going after in week 17 or maybe, maybe that was week 18, but I remember there was like two or three of them. Yeah. Um, I remember Hertzing came on, he kind of broke it all down, but are there like ones that are becoming the chalk already? Yeah, for sure. I mean, everyone is talking about the chiefs and Bengals game <laughs> and you'll see it in drafts too, where it's like someone will take Jamar chase, you know, with the second pick and they'll now grab Mahomes as the quarterback, even though Burrow, you know, would be the direct stack, but just people love the idea of like, Hey, I'll grab a bunch of other chiefs wide receivers late. And then I'll have my bring back in this game, be Jamar chase. And so people are already drafting out of their way. I would say the other game that's really popular is Dallas and Detroit. I think that's one where people can just tell themselves, Hey, in this dome, you know, week 17, get off to a fast start. And so, yeah, we are now looking in the weeds. We're looking at weather stuff. You know, I look at a game like Cleveland, New York jets. And I'm like, I don't know, outdoors in Cleveland, you know, in week, week 17, January 1st, that doesn't sound like a very fun, you know, fantasy environment. So yeah, we're getting in the weeds with this stuff. So is there a particular strategy that works out for that? If everyone's targeting these two games, is it no different than DFS? It's like, well, maybe I want to fade the chalk here a little bit and try to, like, I mean, I don't think that this time last year, Patriots-Dolphins would have been a game that anyone was really no. going out of their way to target, but it probably led to being able to correlate a game a lot later on in the draft. Like, as long as you got Tyreek Hill and Waddle, all of a sudden you were looking pretty good from the Dolphins and Patriots side, really, because no one was really going that highly in drafts. You could just pick off pieces here and there with Myers and Thornton. There must be a few like mid-range games that you could see going off. Like we don't know. If we if we actually knew what was going on, we'd probably be much better at this and not doing content and winning a ton of money. That just the overall game theory would lead you to like the fourth most popular game on the board instead of the first two. For sure. And that's what I tell people because we all have the games in our perfect world that we would like to target, but the truth is we don't know which games will go off. I actually agree with people when they say, hey, we can't predict what's going to happen on January 1st, 2024 right now. I agree completely, but what I do know is that players correlate in games regardless of what the game is. And that correlation works both ways, right? If there's a huge windstorm in Cleveland, all of those players are going to suffer in a correlated fashion. And so when I take my make my picks early, I just want to correlate regardless. You know, if I draft Cooper Cup, I might be looking to get a giant coming back because I say to myself, all right, if Cooper Cup is going for 35 points in week 17, what is going to have to happen for him to get there. Well, the Giants are probably scoring points. They're pushing the Rams or they have them in a negative game script. Maybe that puts Barkley further up my board. Maybe I'm grabbing Daniel Jones because I don't want to do Matthew Stafford or whatever. So I'm just a big maxi believer in just target correlation regardless of it and not worry about the specific environments. You could even, even if you factored in the environments for some of these games, like you could do if you were worried about weather or wind or snow or whatever it might be, less than optimal conditions for some of these games. Like there's some pretty clear cross up. There's a game in Buffalo. There's a game in Chicago. There's a game at MetLife for the Giants. There's a game in Philly. There's a game in Washington. There's a game in Baltimore. I mean, Denver, who knows? Kansas City, obviously, that's one of the more popular ones. Seattle, it could be raining. It could be kind of, it's raining and cold and windy in Seattle. That's not great. But you still have Green Bay at Minnesota, Tennessee at Houston, New Orleans yep. at Tampa Bay, Vegas at Indianapolis. Like, those don't strike me as ones that leap out because no one likes these fucking teams. No, they don't. And, and that is, but to your point, I think being price conscious with that 
makes a ton of sense. And a lot of Pats, you know, Dolphins and uh, Patriots stack last year, it was all super cheap. Those were like his last four or five picks. And it's like, just because they're not the sexy players, just because they're not the premium players, everyone wants, in a perfect world, you get Joe Burrow with T. Higgins and Jamar Chase and you bring it back with Travis Kelsey. Well, first of all, you can't do that because the ADPs don't line up. And two, you're spending all of your early picks on that correlation where it's like, the studs are going to perform regardless, right? We know these guys, Cooper Cup, for example, he can perform in any environment. It's actually the ancillary pieces, the guys in the double digit rounds of drafts where it's like they need to be carried by a crazy game environment for them to perform. And that's what happened with a guy like Tyquan Thornton, who didn't really do much at all last year, but then he had a 60 yard, one touchdown game when it mattered the most because the game environment got sped up a little bit. So I actually like that idea too of like, I like to lean into correlation even more later in the draft where at the beginning, I'm fine just taking the best players. Oh, this guy falls to me. I'm going to take him. I'll figure out the correlation stuff down the road. Looking at the rest of the first round right now, like McCaffrey's still going inside the top five picks. Kelsey is going up there as well. And I guess Eckler is kind of the next guy off the board. Is it pretty consensus that it's McCaffrey, Eckler, one, two? Because... That was very close to what it was a year ago, and I think that, I mean, your guy, the fantasy football counselor, I mean, he talks about the conception, <laughs> conception, uh, I can't even say it, you know, us in the industry all the time, just copy and paste last year's rankings. I mean, there is something to that, that drafts aren't won because, hey, Austin Eckler was the number two scorer last year. He's obviously going to be the number two scorer this year. Everything points to both those guys being really good. That's probably how I'd have them ranked when I put them out, but the Bijan Robinson thing scares the hell out of me for the hype that he's getting right now everyone just assumes he's going to catch passes in Atlanta but the Arthur Smith offense doesn't throw to running backs and he also like Desmond Ritter isn't necessarily a guy you think of as some check down king like he's not Philip Rivers 2.0 who's just gonna like pepper you know his running back so I'm with you I do think it is a scoring setting thing where half point, you know, PPR, then you can break ties in favor of Bijan if you want. Full point PPR, Eckler makes so much more sense. I think what happened with Eckler is there was all of that early off-season uncertainty about whether he was going to stay with the Chargers. He wanted that new contract, and I think people were getting spooked. And so you would see Eckler go in the second round of drafts. Now everyone's finally getting comfortable. We know he's going to be back with the Chargers. And so I, I'm with you. I think there is a little risk just as Eckler gets older. What if they don't use him as much? They bring in Quentin Johnston um, in the first round, another rookie wide receiver who can maybe steal a few targets away. So there's maybe a little fragility in that projection. But yeah, Austin Eckler is still, I think, a locked and loaded first round pick in basically every format. And it does seem like where they're not probably going to extend his contract they're going to get him to play on this one-year deal that they might just run him into the ground I, the thing i would be worried about with him is just pure touchdown regression just the amount of touchdowns he scored last year seems weirdly unsustainable for him maybe he does it again but to put up 18 touchdowns if he only puts up 12 touchdowns he's, he's not going to be up there and the nice thing too for eckler right is he virtually no competition for touches like over the past few years, the chargers have constantly tried to find a secondary back last year. They spent a pretty high pick on Isaiah Spiller. He looks like a bust. They have just basically rotated through these running back twos right now. Joshua Kelly is kind of going to be that second guy, but we know who Joshua Kelly is. He's a guy who comes in, gets five to seven touches, maybe some of the short yardage work. Whereas you can look at another backfield, say, you know, Kenneth Walker, who we all loved crushed last year as a rookie. Then they draft Zach Charbonnet, who's legit good who could just force a 50 50 timeshare right out of the gate that gives you pause with Eckler you look around at the rest of the room and you're like no this is Austin Eckler's show 
Is there any sort of mid-range running back that you don't mind going to? I want to see what his ADP is right now. Like, Rashad Penny is going at 130 overall. He just strikes me as someone who could very much be a league winner because we know what his upside is. No idea what the role is going to look like in Philadelphia. But if he just gets four weeks to himself, and hopefully they're at the end of the year, it could just be what he did in Seattle. It's like, oh, yeah, 22 carries, 190 yards, and two touchdowns in these games. Like, that would be the type of guy that I would be going for if I was to lock in a stud or two at running back and just punt it until the 12th round or something. Yeah, I I love Rashad Penny. I think, you know, even last year, he was really discounted. Well, one, because they drafted Kenneth Walker in Seattle. And two, everyone's perception of Rashad Penny is this guy can never stay healthy. He's glass, which is completely true. Like he, he never stays healthy. But when he is on the field, he absolutely smashes. He did it last year or two years ago in week 17. He went off against the Lions, was on all the winning teams. Last year, of course, just smashed out of the gate um, before he got hurt and Kenneth Walker took over. But that's the great thing about best ball, right? We don't have to guess when Rashad Penny is going to go off. We draft him in the double digit rounds. We know he's now on the best offense in football. It is really explosive. Even if he only gives you, let's just say he gives you four spiked weeks, four 20 plus point weeks, and the rest he doesn't even play or sniff your lineup that can pay off that draft cost. It's basically what Alexander Madison has done every year, where everyone takes him as a 13th round pick. Dalvin Cook, you know, plays 15 of the 17 or 18 games. But those two or three games where Alexander Madison gets 20 plus touches, that gets into your lineup at a cheap cost and it pays it off completely. Have you given any consideration to a fourth or fifth round Delvin Cook, which I'm seeing right now? (laughs) That one's tough. That one is tough. And this year, we've had this unique landscape where there was all of these running backs who I think traditionally would have been like second, third round picks. Like Joe Mixon is hanging out in that range. Cam Akers, who was a smash down the stretch and a couple years ago was a one-two turn pick, is hanging out in that range. So it's this weird thing where like, hey, aren't you supposed to be going earlier in drafts? But with Dalvin Cook, I think you have legitimate concerns about where is he going to land it sounds like the most likely scenario right now according to the vikings is that he gets traded as opposed to cut i don't know who's paying a lot to acquire him i know there's a lot of enthusiasm of people being like oh he goes back to miami you know that's where he has roots all of that stuff i don't even think that's a clean landing spot for him i mean they draft devin a chain early in the draft they retain both jeff wilson and raheem mostert and sure maybe dalvin cook's more talented but that's a messy crowded backfield i think he's going there and getting 10 to 15 touches and so i do think we have to kind of reevaluate on an older back like dalvin cook still struggles with shoulder stuff basically always an issue for him i think he's kind of properly valued where he's going it's funny to see the shift in terms of the years that it was you know it was running back running back running back if you wanted to go First three rounds running back, that would be the way to go. And then there was the zag to eventually zero RB ended up taking over. Now there seems to be a mismatch of all of that. But now we're trending back towards not necessarily zero RB, but it's there are three stud running backs. If you can get one of them, that's great. If not, take your high-end tight end. Take your high-end quarterback. Get your correlations in place. Or just take a receiver and just load up on receivers because they're going to score a ton of points. And it's weird to me to see someone like, you know, B. John Robinson. Everyone's very hyped about that. Saquon is going just behind him, although Saquon seems to be like, I don't want to say the good version of Robinson, but <laughs> the good the good version of Robinson, isn't that just Saquon Barkley's stats? Yeah, no, it, it it is it is interesting because it used to be like you said, you get your bell cow 
anchor running back in the first round, and then you can address other positions because there's only what? There's like 10 to 12 of them in the league. Now it's almost reversed where so many of the backfields are committee split backfields, but there's only a handful of like alpha wide receivers in the league. So now what I notice drafters doing, and I like doing this too, it's like, give me Tyree Kill, give me Cooper Cup, Justin Jefferson, and then I'll come back in the second and third round and I'll draft these running backs who I think could finish top five at the position. I can grab a Tony Pollard. I can grab a Nick Chubb. I can grab a Ramon. Andre Stevenson and you look at the drafting board right now and like the third round is just so juicy for running backs you got Josh Jacobs there Derrick Henry I mean Josh Jacobs smashed last year in the olden days when we played fantasy football Pat he would be a top five pick but I don't know now for whatever reason drafters are discounting it they're worried about it they're prioritizing other positions and you can get these guys in the third round it seems kind of crazy to me. Just like this is the first time I've really opened up and really looked at the ADP, but a late second round Derrick Henry or Josh Jacobs, I mean, that seems like a no brainer to me. Like I, I get that Jalen Waddles there. I get that Jalen Waddles very good, but just the positional value if Derrick Henry has eighty five percent of a regular Derrick Henry year, it has to be way better than whatever Jalen Waddle does versus other receivers. Even two rounds later, like I don't know. I mean, Amari Cooper's going way higher than I thought, but even someone like Michael Pittman, (laughs) like how, I mean, I know the circumstances around Michael Pittman aren't exactly great, but they haven't been great outside of really the Rivers year where you had like someone competent throwing him the ball. But if Richardson starts from week one, who knows what that's going to be or whether it's Minshew. Minshew's probably better for his early season stats than we've seen, but I don't know, Waddle being the number two, although it's like a 1B situation, how much better than Michael Pittman is he going to be? Or if you reverse it and take Derrick Henry versus, I don't know, DeAndre Swift in Philly. I mean, just give me Derrick Henry like 10 times out of 10. Yeah, and I do think that is the best part about doing multiple drafts is you start to know where the value pockets are on the draft board. I mentioned those third round running backs. It's a really great place to take running backs. They're also is in my opinion, a huge wide receiver cliff in the eighth or ninth round. It's like, you'll have Jahan Dotson and Rashad Bateman, and these guys go off the board. And the next thing you know, you're looking around and it's like Juju Smith-Schuster, Jacoby Myers. And it's like, yeah, these are guys, they're going to catch a few balls, but none of these guys have, you know, game breaking upside. And so I'm constantly like weighing those things. And then to your point, when some of those guys come off the board, that's when Rashad Penny's available. That's when Zach Charbonnet is available. Some of these guys I like, A.J. Dillon's there. And so I kind of like to zig and zag around the draft board, knowing where the pockets are and being like, hey, I can take a couple running backs in the third and fourth because I know these wide receivers in rounds five through eight are going to really line up with the value pockets. And that just comes from doing a lot of drafts. Do you have a hard, fast rule about drafting quarterbacks early, mid-range, or late? Or does it really all depend on who your first-round pick is? And if you draft Jamar Chase, well, you're going to have to try to get Joe Burrow. I I have had to readjust my thinking on this because like a lot of people, you know, who anyone who's been watching fantasy football content over the years, we know our friend JJ, you know, calls it the late round quarterback strategy. It has been a very fruitful strategy, but the league has now changed. We have these guys who run a ton and they're cheat codes in fantasy. And so now this year you open up the draft applet and you're like, oh, Patrick Mahomes went in round five last year. Jalen Hurts went at the six, seven turn. Wait, what? They're going in the second round. That's what's happening. Sometimes they go in the first round. And so I am having to adjust to how I think about this. At first, I was like, forget it. I'm not paying these prices. I'll go late round quarterback. And then 
these draft rooms didn't budge. I thought, oh, maybe the quarterbacks will get cheaper. And I'm saying to myself, do I really want to go the whole offseason having zero exposure to these high-end guys? And the truth is I don't. And so, yeah, I'm picking my spots. Like you said, you have the really obvious stacking candidates for the major three quarterbacks. So in the first round, if you get A.J. Brown, you can grab Jalen Hurts. If you get Travis Kelsey, you can grab Mahomes. And if you get Diggs, you can grab Josh Allen. So that is kind of dictating it. I basically will either stack them up or I want a discount. You know, sometimes Josh Allen will slide into the third round and then I'll grab him. But yeah, I, I still have sticker shock with some of these new QB prices. I'm surprised that Anthony Richardson isn't going higher based on what you said about mm. cheat codes. And just even to see like Justin Fields, how far he fell down last year, there was buzz about Fields, but it was more around Hurts. Like, hey, could Hurts end up being the number one QB? And there was people who were saying like, yo, he's going to get replaced after week three by Gardner Minshew. And then other people who went all in. It seems like Justin Fields, people are, are very comfortable with going all in on him this year I mean you, you can stack him up if you want to maybe he can just win you weeks because weirdly enough when you think about these running quarterbacks do you have to stack them up like I don't know if Justin Fields has his best week he's probably not throwing for any touchdowns yeah it's so funny I was just having a very similar debate the other night on our show ship chasing about this Anthony Richardson thing and how you approach stacking him. I think real quick, what's interesting about the Anthony Richardson stuff is there's a total disconnect on how fantasy drafters think about him and how the average sports fan on Twitter thinks about him. Like if you do an Anthony Richardson tweet, you'll get all these replies being like, he stinks. I watched him at Florida. I can't hit a broadside of a barn. This guy's going to be a flop. And then, you know, fantasy drafters who only care about, hey, if he rushes for a thousand yards, I really don't even care how much he throws the ball. It's essentially what happened to Justin Fields last year. It's like, just run for a lot of touchdowns, throw the occasional deep ball, and that will be, you know, a top six fantasy quarterback. So drafters are, you know, aggressively targeting him. But to the stacking thing, the reason it's tricky is I think about it in two ways. I completely agree with you in a single game upside he could rush for 150 yards and two TDs, like full stop. This is the most athletic quarterback of all time. He can definitely do that. So then he doesn't necessarily need to correlate with a pass catcher. On the other hand, I think if Anthony Richardson is really good, if he's the second coming of Jalen Hurts, that whole offense is going to be good. There's going to be a rising tide lifts all boats. He's going to hit Alec Pierce for deep bombs. Jonathan Taylor is going to have wide open rush lanes. A guy like Jelani Woods is going to catch a dozen touchdowns in those scenarios. And so... I do want to bet on the offense succeeding if Anthony Richardson does, but you can also certainly play it as a more skimmed down thing of I'm just going to take Richardson and maybe one guy because I'm just going to bank on the rushing element. And it doesn't seem to be, I guess it depends on what draft you're in, whether he's expensive or not expensive. Because I'm looking at the high stake stuff at the, uh, at the NFC right now. You know, his highest pick in a draft is 66th overall. His lowest is 356th. And I think you're right about that disconnect that he does feel like he's going to be a guy where one or two people in your league are just going to pounce all over him. And I think that I'm going to be one of those guys, weirdly enough, because I don't give a shit if he's good or bad. Maybe he sucks and like, whatever, I'll drop him. There are other quarterbacks if you're not just playing strictly best ball if you're just playing in season long if it's best ball I have other quarterbacks on my roster it's not that big of a deal but he does feel like a league winner if he's somewhat good based on what he does yeah and I think the thing to realize with him right and it's a really good example because last year at like the six seven turn of drafts was Jalen Hurts 
and Trey Lance. And going into the season, they were these two toolsy, big athletic quarterbacks that we could tell our story, tell ourselves stories about them just absolutely smashing. Jalen Hurts hit the high end of that outcome in a great way, total league winner. Trey Lance hit the bottom range of that outcome, basically got hurt, didn't ever get going, yada, yada. I think that's Anthony Richardson in a nutshell. He could give us like a 90% of what Jalen Hurts did last year. The reason I won't say he could ever access that is because he just doesn't have as good of weapons. I mean, A.J. Brown, Dallas Goddard, and Devonta Smith are you know one of the best trios in the league. That's just not what Anthony Richardson has. But I think a realistic outcome would be Justin Fields last year, where he just runs a ton, connects for a few deep bumps. But he could also have a Trey Lance season. He could be so bad that he gets benched for Gardner Minshew and you burn a pick. But to your point, does it matter? You're drafting a bunch of these best ball teams. You're just trying to hit the nuts. If you burn a few, you know, trying to chase a high end outcome. I mean, so be it. Uh, are you, are you seeing much? I mean, there doesn't seem to be, at least in terms of reflected in ADP, any love for the Rams whatsoever, but it seems <laughs> like you could build like a pretty easy cup Higby, Matt Stafford stack, knowing this team's probably not going to be very good, constantly throwing. And that's, basically all they have I mean yes they have Van Jefferson yes they have Skoranek and some losers that they drafted but it's gonna be those three guys yeah no I mean people are out on these Rams I mean you get Cup going in the first you get Cam Akers going in the sixth or seventh and then no one wants to touch the rest of these guys you know Van Jefferson is free Tyler Higby's free I got Matthew Stafford at pick 200 in a draft earlier this week where I had taken Cooper Cup and I just wanted to stack him up and I'm like fine if you're going to give me Matthew Stafford for free I'll do it um and there are some dart throws late you know they got this rookie uh Puka who they drafted who I think could be kind of like a Robert Woods-esque slot guy for them and then they got Tutu Atwell this pint-sized guy who was actually kind of sneaky good last year is super fast can get open down the field and so yeah if you want to do we were talking about correlation earlier if you want to backdoor stack the rams you can do it incredibly cheap i don't know how good tutu atwell was last year as someone who played him on DraftKings at the mid like every week just crossing my fingers hope praying it would happen for him and it didn't yeah, I know. Uh, I was with you. It's so funny you say that because my version of that was I played Taekwon Thornton every single week for the men. And then I finally get off the train in week 17, watch my buddy Pat win 2 million with him while I'm left, you know, holding my holding the bag there on DraftKings. All right, well, let's switch topics. I think we uh, sucked in people enough for, for football stuff. Want to talk to you? <laughs> We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Pro teams have millions to spend, and they don't always spend them wisely. But when it comes to a great shave, you don't have to shell out tons of cash. 
Harry's saw customers getting ripped off by the shaving industry with overpriced, underperforming products and decided to do something better. They found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of the other big brands, so you never wonder if you overpaid. Harry's shaving products look great, and the weighted handle makes shaving feel great too. I like to keep my beard neat, and Harry's always leaves me with a smooth yet crisp shave. Harry's quality is top-notch, thanks to German-engineered blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. You can get a five-blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and a travel cover for just three bucks at harrys.com slash bluewire. And Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, plus a convenient subscription option that you can cancel at any time. Getting the best doesn't mean spending the most when you shave with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire for a $3 trial set. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. How's dad life going? It's good, man. It's crazy. Yeah, my daughter is turning uh, six months old this uh, this coming week. So, um, you know, blowing my mind that it's already been a half a year. You know, she's starting to sleep through the night mostly, which has been... Uh, a big bonus, but honestly, I'm, I'm loving it. You know, uh, it's hard to juggle everything, doing all these best ball streams, doing all this content, um, you know, so trying to manage it all, but I, I genuinely am loving it. Yeah. And you, did you get your sauna completely installed and everything like that too? I did. I did. Well, and I, I wrote about this in my newsletter. Uh, I had to get a real man, which is my father to help install it. They came out to see the baby and I was like, Oh, by the way, dad, you want to help me install this sauna? Because I have zero handyman skills whatsoever. But yeah, I've uh, been using the sauna basically once a day, sometimes twice a day, best purchase I've ever made. So you have the sauna and you have the cold plunge now too, right? I don't have a cold pledge. Oh. Uh, I take cold showers, but you know, I haven't gone full Huberman lab, you know, 2023 tech bro with the cold plunge yet. I, I, the, my trainer, he, uh, he has one out back. It's just, I mean, I have no idea how, how it works, but he's just like, yeah, you want to jump in out back? You can go for it. Like, it's kind of awesome. I kind of enjoy it. I, it is. If I had any willpower, I would like, I, I can't do cold showers when I wake up in the morning. I just like, I don't want to do this. And I know it'll wake me up for the day. It make me feel great. But I feel like if I could jump into something, that might be the key. There you go. So what you need is you need like a bigger cold plunge. You basically need a pool that is a cold plunge. That would just require a lot of ice. It's not, it, or you just move to Scandinavia is what I think you really need to do, Pat. Well, maybe that or the, the ice bucket challenge needs to come back. And like, I need to like fill myself <laughs> yeah. doing that every morning. And like, then, then it's a double win for me. Yeah. And it is true. Like, it's so funny now. I can't go on TikTok without seeing a video where it's like, do you know the dopamine release you get from um, alcohol can be replicated by doing just a cold shower? And it's like, look, I like cold showers, guys. It, it makes me feel good too, but it's not the same as having <laughs> having drinks of alcohol. Yeah, it, it doesn't really feel like the same sensation to me. I, I mean, I get it a little bit, just like the, the rush yeah. you would get. I don't think I would equate that to booze. Maybe doing shots could be the closest yes. comparison to it, but uh, it's probably other things that like the, the rush of the cold plunge gives you. 
Yeah. And I, I think my, my whole thing with, and obviously there's scientific studies, you know, for both the sauna and cold punch specifically with the sauna, there's lots of research from Scandinavian studies about longevity benefits, reducing cardiovascular disease, yada, yada. But like, for me, the biggest thing is it helps motivate me to work out. Cause it's this carrot at the end of the workout. It's this thing I look forward to of, Hey, if I break a sweat, then I can go chill out in the sauna. And so for me, it's just been a powerful thing where I'm like, Oh yeah, I want to get in the sauna, but I should probably just go for a run first. Or I should probably go lift a little bit and justify relaxing. And so in that way, it's just been like this hack to getting me to work out more. Yeah. You just need, you need to build up a sweat somewhere to justify, you know, I'm not even, I'm not even warm yet. I can't go into the cold plunge. I need to be warm to get into the plunge. Probably easier to do during the, uh, during the summer as well. And then like in sauna in the summertime is going to be like double sauna, I guess. I'm probably not doing two a days in the sauna in July. Yeah. I don't know. I, I love it so much. You know, it's 90 degrees here. Uh, I live in Boston and uh, I still did the sauna earlier here today. So I don't know if it's slowing me down, Pat. I, I love it that much. That's pretty good. So I did, uh, like I was, I went with my wife out West and we like, we went to one of the spa days and they had like an entire circuit of the hot to cold. So it was like, mm. there was the cold shower, but then there was like six other stations of different types of saunas. There's like an infrared sauna, a eucalyptus sauna. There was like a hot tub of like hot springs underneath wherever the hell we were at. That will throw you for a loop. Just going hot, cold, hot, cold. Apparently it's great for you, but it just made me want to take a nap. I know that's in my head when I was getting the sauna, I was like, oh, I'll get to just replicate, you know, one of these things where I'll do the sauna and then a cold shower back in the sauna. And then you realize, no, I'm a dad and I have stuff to do and I can only justify 15 minutes of the sauna. I can't just, you know, carve out a two hour spa day on a random Wednesday afternoon. But maybe one of these days, uh, Pat, I'll win a best ball tournament and then I can just, you know, luxuriate in the sauna all day. Yeah, you win Powerball, win a best ball tournament, just kind of chill for a bit. Have you noticed like your content or workout schedule change that much because I know like the for both my kids like the first six months really the first year and a half of them I got into really good shape because I was just moving around going on walks doing everything like that it wasn't until they became a little bit older and they started eating like shit food and then they wouldn't eat it all and I'd see it on the table and be like well I'm not just gonna throw out these egos I'm not gonna throw out these chicken nuggets I'll scarf those back and then it's like but it's like a freshman 15 all over again no, for sure. I, I had, um, the biggest change I made is I, you know, I used to go to the gym. I used to, you know, take my sweet time and, you know, two hours at the gym putzing around because I had nothing else going on. And it was kind of just an activity and a, and a way for me to justify being healthy. And then I was like, I don't have time one to commute to the gym. I don't have time to lollygag in between machines and stuff. And so I've gotten like more efficient. Um, and that was partly why I did the sauna and, you know, working on building out a home gym, because I was like, if I can cut out this hour that I'm just commuting to and from the gym, essentially, that will save me extra time on the back end. And so I've, I've noticed that bled over into everything I do. I think since having a kid, I realized I'm doing almost the same amount of work, but I'm just doing it far more efficiently because I'm now realizing, holy cow, I would just sit down at my computer to do this thing. And it would take me four hours because I had the time to get distracted. And now I'm like, nope, blinders on, go get this done, go get this workout done. So in that way, it's definitely been a, a blessing. Yeah, I do see why. I mean, for years, I never quite understood it. But you see a lot of sports writers, sports podcasters, whoever it might be, and you see them get a little bit older, you see them have kids, and they used to cover all of these things. Like, you know, they'd be able to come on and talk some college football with you or the NBA or whatever. Now they have, like, the two things that they do or the one thing that they do, and they don't seem to know anything about anything else because there's no free random scrolling time anymore. 
No, I know. And I, I'm bad I in that I, I don't say no a lot. You know, I, I say yes to a lot of things, which is why I have all these random shows why and projects that why, I've done. Why you're on right now? Why, why? No, I mean, come on, Pat. I always look forward to hopping on with you. But yeah, that is my thing. It's, it's, it's ballooned in size. And eventually, I feel like I'm going to have to scale back. But I'm fortunate in that, you know, all the stuff I'm doing now, I do genuinely love it. Doesn't feel like work. So I don't burn out. And that's uh, that's the important thing. Yeah. And you get to work. I mean, I assume this is a setup that you have at your house. You're not going to a, you know, a second location and killing time every single day. You can just you know get yourself ready, go to your room, have it locked off and just be good to go. Exactly. Although I, I do get jealous of, you know, setups like yourself or when I get to see, you know, like the fantasy footballers that get to do their podcasts in the same room together. That always looks super fun to me. Like the very first podcast I did in the fantasy space with, with was with some of my local improv buddies. And we started doing it all in person and just the chemistry and the, you know, the element of doing it live. It really is hard to match that. So I do feel like I lose that. Um, but yeah, it is also very nice only having to commute down the stairs to my office. It, it is a huge advantage to have people in the studio. You can read their facial tics. You can get more. Uh, you can get more chemistry a lot quicker. And I think that what we've seen in the podcasting space, especially since you know the pandemic, more people started doing stuff from home all of the time. And then people got up to date on how to use a lot of this technology, how to hook a real microphone up to a computer so they don't sound like absolute dog shit as they're going through it, is that they have to utilize the same people over and over and over because that's the only way to really develop chemistry over something like this. If we're doing a Zoom call or a Skype call or Google Space or whatever the hell people are using to record whatever. Yeah. Like I, I have that with Sealy. I've been doing a show with Sealy remotely now for like nine years. Like we have good chemistry, but it's really difficult to bring new people into the fray, never having talked to them before. Like I always get this with uh, my buddy Wiley. Like I've talked to Wiley a whole bunch of times, but I always forget that he has the weirdest cadence in the world that he loves to pause. <laughs> and then keep talking. And I always try to talk when he's making the pause and then it just becomes a clusterfuck. It's, it is true. It's like, yeah, you either have to get a ton of reps with one person and then you get comfortable. And a lot of people I've been doing shows with, you know, Brian Hooper, who I do lulls with, you know, we've now been doing that show since COVID hit at the beginning of the pandemic. And so I know all those little quirks. I have a very good instinct on whether he is going to respond to something or whether I need to move the conversation along. But there is something like you said with in person where that just comes so much more effortlessly and you can kind of read someone in real time. And I'm, I'm like the same way with that. You know, people always ask me like, oh, did you watch that stand up comedy? special. And I'm just like, I love going to see stand-up comedy live, but something is just lost for me watching it on television. I just like don't, even people I think are super funny. I just don't find, you know, TV specials compelling in the way I do in person. There's some kind of ineffable quality to being in real life for that stuff that just makes it pop. There's that in... I mean, especially, I mean, maybe not stadium shows in terms of stand-up comedy, the way that works, because that feels very impersonal anyway, but the smaller shows, that interaction that you get. And I think one of the big things about podcasting that people really like is, A, they want they either want the people to like each other or hate each other, but they want to seem like the show is actually having a good time as they roll along. And in studio, it's easier to talk over people in a way that's listenable, where that just doesn't exist even with the way that we're talking right now. If I just started talking over you, I wouldn't be able to hear what you were saying. If you were sitting across from me and I wanted to talk over you, I'd still be able to hear what you're saying and I would just continue to talk over you. There's something weirdly different about those two things, although they're exactly the same. 
It is true. And now that you say it, I remember when I was doing my in-person podcast, we would cut each other off way more. Whereas now doing podcasts or, you know, I did Sirius XM this year where you can't talk over someone on the radio. It's a volley back and forth. And, you know, there there's a time and place for that stuff. I do like the idea of people eavesdropping in on a real conversation. And what happens in real conversations? People cut each other off. People talk over each other. And so finding a happy medium between that is, I think, you know what, podcasting nirvana, I guess, is what we're, we're shooting for there. How did you like being on Sirius? I did a Sirius show in 2011, weirdly, in the Sirius studios in New York, Greg Sussman, Greg Sussman and I. That's when I met Greg. We got thrown into a show together to do three hours on a Saturday. But you're, are you doing every weekday on Sirius during football? So during, yeah, this past season, I did Monday through Friday, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern. So it was 10 hours a week of XM radio with Kendall Valenzuela, with Fantasy Life. And I really enjoyed it. It was a, it was a great learning experience, too, because I do think coming from a podcast background, I tend to be very rambly. I know I had a lot of bad vocal tics, you know, doing the likes and the um stuff. I, I'm sure I still do, but it forced me to tighten up. It forced me to communicate my thoughts and articulate more clearly. And I've now seen that transfer over to doing other shows. And it's really polished me in a way as a broadcaster that I found very valuable. Did you know Kendall really before starting the show or was that you were thrust together and now all of a sudden you're just doing a show? Yeah, exactly. Kendall and I did, we met, um, you know, they hired her at Fantasy Life in last summer and we did some test shows. And to your, your point, you know, getting to know each other for the first time and doing a new format that I wasn't used to, you know, I'm very comfortable podcasting, but XM, you got your outs, you got to get your ad breaks. And so it was a bit of a learning curve, but I do think we kind of hit our stride and I, it was interesting because normally I play more of the host and I have lots of people that I do shows with that know fantasy really well. And I'm kind of asking them questions. This one, like the tables were a little bit turned because Kendall's such a good host. I played more of the analyst. So that was kind of an interesting switch for me as well. And, you know, over the years, I've kind of, you know, built up that analyst muscle a little more. Back when I started, I was just doing comedic videos and goofing around. And I still love doing that, but it's been nice to add that skill set. And I would say, you know, after a couple months, I think we really hit our stride. And then the show just felt, you know, very comfortable and natural. That's an interesting position to be in going from host to analyst, because I went from analyst to host. And then very hmm. rarely do I ever really get I get I get to be an analyst in solo videos that I do for like, you know, NFL Network or PGA Tour or, or but they're all short form. I mean, I used to write scripts for them. But I said, fuck that. It's just like, turn on the yeah. camera. I'll I have my internal clock set to both 60 seconds, 90 seconds, and 120 seconds of what I need to get out, depending on whatever the topic is now. And just if I fuck it up, we'll roll it again, and then we'll fix it in editing, whatever it might be. You become very lazy uh, at the end of it. Yeah, we couldn't figure out how to, re honestly, we couldn't figure out how to reset up the teleprompter once we moved studios. We were just like, ah, let's just do it this way. But the non-teleprompter stand-up videos, if you do them right, if you're not reading from a script, are always like a million times better than reading from the script. It's just you don't fuck up the script when you're reading the script. Have you ever used a teleprompter? I have. Um, and I've actually, I've, I've, I've really wanted to set up one at my house, like around my my camera here. It's, it's hard to get a really good setup. I think I can do teleprompter stuff in kind of a natural way, but it also... It also takes practice too. And so I've, you know, before I was like jerry rigging a teleprompter where the text is kind of behind it and off the side. And for like a true teleprompter, you're looking directly into the camera. Um, 
But I will say too, like with scripted stuff, and I've been doing a ton of YouTube shorts, um, both for Fantasy Life and my channel and, you know, other platforms you can post longer than 60 seconds, but on YouTube for shorts, you're still capped at 60 and it really forces you to tighten stuff up. And so you do have to pre-script it. I have to time it ahead of time to make sure. And then I am trying to balance that of like, yes, I have my bullet points. I even have often a direct script, but I'm not reading off of it verbatim and I have to make it look like I don't have a teleprompter and that's kind of a skill in itself. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I find that everyone gets a teleprompter cadence because obviously you don't want to be the person just sitting there like this very clearly with yeah. your eyes moving back and forth. So you need to know what it says going into it, but then you develop a certain cadence to make yourself sound natural. The issue that I always came from was I got good at reading teleprompter and sounding natural, but I always sounded the same way. Yeah, no, that's so true. And it's also funny. I, uh, way back when, when I first started making content, I actually went to do an interview at DraftKings for one of their, um, it was an in-person cause, uh, at their Boston offices, they were looking for an in-studio analyst and they had had me prepare like a, a fantasy video script or whatever. And I had memorized it essentially this is how green i was i just thought they wanted me to go in and so i had kind of like memorized it i had my points and they're like let's get the teleprompter set up and this was my first time doing a teleprompter and it was it was a mess like i just did not do it well i was kind of like stumbling over it was the first time i had had done it and uh you do realize quickly it like everything it takes practice because i was like very comfortable like talking and you know without the teleprompter but the first time you do it you're like holy cow this is its own beast and everyone's looking at you, and I mean, we, Paul and I used to cut together like the clips of me fucking up the teleprompter because you, yeah. you, want, well, you want to do like the reason that you're using the teleprompter is that you want to do it perfectly. Like I probably fucked up 15 times in this conversation with you, said the wrong word, flubbed a word, whatever it is, and I don't care. The audience doesn't care because it's a part of a conversation that we're having. In a 30 or 60 second video, you flub any little part and maybe the audience doesn't realize, but you know you fucked it up in a way that there is no, absolutely no reason to fuck this up. I said the wrong word that was up there and that happens. Or you stumble a word or, or you forget to put a period in and don't pause and you just like, you get into this robotic mode of trying to read everything. It, it just doesn't work out. Paul and I used to do it. Like when we went to broadcasting school, like we had like teleprompter days and wow, people are bad at teleprompter. <laughs> oh, for sure. And you know what? It always reminds me of too, anyone who's ever been to a wedding when you have a script and say someone's given the best man or the maid of honor speech, if they are reading off of a script, one, it's like generally a little uncomfortable. I understand why people do it. Most people aren't versed in public speaking, but you expect them to nail it because they are reading it. When you go off the cuff and you don't have it, people will give you more lenience in the same way you just said, we can mess up on this podcast. And because they know we don't have a script right now, they are going to cut us some slack because it's organic and real. And so in general too, it's like, I know it feels weird to be out there with the safety net, but people will give you so much more leeway if you aren't directly reading off something or letting people know that you're reading off something. So anytime I go and see a speech at a wedding and I can tell they're not doing it off a script, I'm like so relieved for them because they're normally like tense and reading it. And it's like, you can't mess up if you're reading something off a piece of paper. I've given one best man speech in my life and I stressed out about writing stuff all day that I just didn't do it. And I just walked up to the podium and was like, all right, let's go. And it worked out much better yeah. that way. Cause I was like, I, I was, well, I, mean, I gotta spend 
five hours writing this down. Like, what's everything I can remember? It's like, maybe if I just start talking after a glass of wine that everything is going to be all right. You know, there's old people in the room, don't want to get too graphic with anything, but, you know, include, you know, talk about, because have you given a best man speech? I have given, not a specifically a best man speech, but I've given multiple, uh, you know, I've hosted and like emceed some weddings, done some stuff like that. So I, I, I've, I've done it a few times. It's just a very hard balance because as the best man, I'm there to talk about him, but you need to find that balance of how to bring her into it as well. And like a lot of the times, I mean, maybe not a lot of the times, but there's certain circumstances where you just don't know your friend's wife all that much, especially if people like everyone I know got married way later in life. Like no one was getting married at 18. Everyone got married at 30. Well, and there's the ten. Everyone wants to be funny and be an engaging storyteller. But if you think about even like stand up, right? Those jokes that you see in a special or you go see your favorite performer, they have not only scripted and rehearsed those hundreds of times, they've tried them in different environments all to get that perfectly finely tuned. And you're going to put on yourself one, not, not as a stand-up comedian writing an entertaining speech and then practicing it like twice and just hoping to crush it in front of people. Like that's a tall task. So why not just sidestep that and say, you know what? Maybe I'm not going to be as funny as I would like, but I'm just going to speak from the heart and talk about why my best friend, you know, means a lot to me. And the people are going to eat it up because it's going to feel natural and organic. So that's that's my pro tip. Don't write your best man and maid of honor speeches. Yeah, if you want to make a two or three bullet points, I think that works out pretty well. At least have yeah. an idea of a story or two that you want to tell. The one tip that I would give, and I really tried to stick by this, was no longer than five minutes. Like, don't be up there yes. rambling. Once you start rambling, it only gets worse. A hundred percent. And that that's true of everything. And again, another exercise of making YouTube shorts or, you know, I've written the fantasy life newsletter for multiple years now. And I, I always keep it, the intros pretty tight because I know people are skimming. I know people are swiping through videos and the better you can get at succinctly delivering your message, not overindulging or loving, you know, the, your sound of your own voice as you, you know, when go on as a windbag or whatever. Now I'm doing it as I say not to do what I'm doing. Um, people will appreciate that people like it when you just get in and get out i think that works except for the medium of podcasting like we're gonna wrap up here probably in the next five minutes but if we made the show three hours it would get more downloads yeah it's and it's true for youtube too i've noticed that like my i expanded my best ball streams i used to just do one draft get out around 45 minutes and then you see how people like to consume it, the way the algorithms treat it. And like you said, podcast, YouTube, the longer you go, the better. People want to turn it on, have you in the background while they're doing a bunch of stuff. And uh, we might want to get on with our lives, but the listeners want to just keep hanging out. I mean, I get it because I, I I like really long podcasts. I can chuck it on. You know, when I drive to the office, I'll listen to 30 minutes of it. Like, but when I'm going to pick up my kids, I'll listen to another 20 minutes of it. You know, then I have to turn it over to Spotify and their playlist and they'll freak out in the car. And then after I put them to bed or when I'm putting them to bed, like they like to sit there and you know, read a book or lay down and try to go to sleep. Like, well, I'm just fucking laying here. I'm going to like chuck it in. Uh, earpod and just listen to something uh, and just finish it off that way and if it's something i like then i'm more than willing to consume enough of it um in terms of lulls before we go if you don't mm. download pete's podcast please go do that i had brian on two weeks ago i think it is really fascinating how you have evolved this show into everything because I want to talk to you about <laughs> NFTs because you guys were doing Top Shot so so much at the beginning of the pandemic. And like, do you do any Top Shot stuff anymore? 
No, other than Brian and I lamenting uh, one of the moments, high price moments we went in on together. It was a Nikola Jokic, one of the high end cards. And then he wins two MVPs. He's probably about to win uh, an NBA finals MVP here. And like the price never budged. In fact, it just continued to God, go down because the top shot moments are not correlated whatsoever to on the court performance. So other than making jokes about how bad um, we botched that, that Nikola Jokic moment. Um, no, yeah, we have fully moved on. I have somewhat a lot, a lot of respect for crypto guy and NFT guy who's still <laughs> out there publicly in the streets. Like now nah, you, you, you guys, it's really easy to say when shit selling for, you know, a million bucks for a, a, a crypto punk or bitcoins at $72,000 a Bitcoin when it's on the downswing and you still keep the faith and you're still out there talking about it. I think you saw that uh, a lot of people may not have known as much about this as maybe they put into it. Yeah. And I think that is kind of the evolution of the show with Brian too, where I think people who play DFS, people who play fantasy, now best ball, a lot of them had a poker background. A lot of them are into puzzles and games. Everyone are edge seekers. They're where, where's the next edge? What's the next thing I can get into? That was crypto for a while, then obviously NFTs. And so I think that cohort just self-selects. And so because Brian and I have those kind of interests across all of those different, I don't know, sectors or whatever. I think people like following us around for whatever we're interested in at the time. And you do just start to notice a ton of overlap, you know, with the poker communities, with the crypto, with the DFS. So I think the show kind of just morphing into this catch-all for the type of individual who likes these things uh, has been kind of a, a cool byproduct of the show. Well, it did seem like with the way that you guys were talking about it and the audience that you are, like saying, coming from a poker audience or a DFS audience, that if you just treated crypto and NFTs like gambling, which you guys kind of did, that it actually makes a lot more sense. Right. For, exactly. For sure. Yeah. And you, you did have people who are, this is a revolutionary yeah. technology. It's going to change the thing. Blockchain is going to be used everywhere. It's like, no, we're just speculating on these things that could have been physical, but they happen to be digital. And uh, that's about it at the end of the day. Well, you, you had the very first, I think you probably had the first, like, uh, what was it? Physical. Well, you had the first physical cryptocurrency. And now I think DraftKings is getting back into not NFTs, but actual trading cards. Like, what are we doing here? I was I was dying. I posted that uh, the subject line of the email I got for DraftKings where it said introducing physical uh, trading cards. And I was just laughing because DraftKings has done so much stuff with NFTs that they actually had to use the word physical to say <laughs> trading cards because people would have assumed they meant digital. So yes, um, you know, like everything in life, it's cyclical, right? It's like 80s fashion coming back. It's like, no, now physical cards are in again. Oh man, I can't wait to get a beeper. Get another one. Had one like <laughs> yeah. seven. That'd be awesome. Imagine having a beeper the best it would yeah i mean I, people do do the thing what do they call them like the dumb phones or whatever so you don't have all the apps and notifications what if we just went back to like flip phones and, and pagers that sounds like it'd be great i mean actually having to talk to someone on the phone sounds like the most terrifying experience <laughs> in the world like people phone me i'm just like yeah unless that's like a delivery that i really need to talk to you know i'll, I'll text them back and see what they want and then we can talk if it's something yeah. important it is. I remember when I was 
what I was little, it was like the first time I was probably in like third grade and someone called me up on the phone, uh, to just talk. And it blew my mind as a thought. I was like, what do you, what do you want? Like, I assumed you call. And so now I feel like I've come back to that as well, where it's like, if you call me just to talk, something feels weird. It's like you either text me or email me something, or we see each other next time in person, but I'm not having a conversation on the phone with anyone other than my parents. Well, yeah, yeah. My parents, my grandparents, maybe family members that aren't around. It just, it feels like if someone calls yeah. you, like it's an emergency. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, sh oh no, am I in trouble? Is the, is the house burning down? What's going on? All right, Peter Overzet. Thanks for being on, man. Everyone should go download and watch Lulz on Peter Overzet on YouTube. Very easy to find. Do you, now that the, uh, the the business stuff has probably run its course, uh, do you have new topics for next week or is that going to be a mystery? <laughs> The thing, the, the mystery with Brian and I is we do very, very little show prep. So yeah, people were congratulating us for having all this built-in content fodder, which I did appreciate. So if anyone in the DFS community wants to get in a dust up, um, you know, leave their company, whatever, if you guys could give us some more content to discuss, that would be really nice for our own show prep. Yeah, people do say that you never want to be the main character of Twitter in any single day. <laughs> I, I don't think I want to be like the main character of Lowell's if I'm not on the show. <laughs> Yeah, no, we can get you back on lulls. We've had you on lulls, and uh, yes, no, you, uh, you. We like to be main character adjacent. I think is is kind of where our lane is. That's not a bad spot to be. So follow Pete on Twitter at Peter Overset. Check out the YouTube channel and download lulls on Apple and Spotify. Of course, you're probably already listening to the Pat Mayo Experience, but you can leave a rating and review up there as well. Smash the like and sub to the channel on YouTube. All that stuff really helps us out. I'm sorry we didn't go five hours to really help out the algorithm. But hey, people have been enjoying these hangs, so we're going to keep doing them. I'm Pat Mayo. I'll see you next time. Pat Mayo Experience! Experience!